But it's it's good to be together tonight, and it's good good to see you, um, man. I, I it was just so long without being together and singing together and seeing your faces. So it really is just great to see you, no matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done. We're glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcome. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And we're trying to figure out how to love God, love others, and love Wofford, but more fundamentally, we are a group of people imperfectly trying to figure this out, but most fundamentally, we're people bound by the reality that God loves us. So we want you to experience every week through teaching, through small groups, through one-on-ones, everything that we do in RUF, we hope, especially you first years uh, as you're getting to know us, that you actually experience the love of God and what we say and what we do. That's why we're here tonight, to, uh, to love God um, as, as a, actually an act of gratitude because he's loved us first. We've been talking about relationships this fall, and we're going to continue to do that. Last week, we talked about shame. And if shame is thinking of yourself like too little of yourself, pride is thinking too much of yourself. That's what we're talking about tonight. We're going to talk about pride and specifically how pride affects our relationships how pride affects our relationships with each other and also how we view and relate to God. So uh, it's been a few years, but do you guys remember Pokemon Go? Y'all remember Pokemon Go? I might think, scanning the room, who played Pokemon Go in here? Um, All right, if you remember, in 2016, Pokemon Go, like, took the app gaming, iPhone, smartphone kind of gaming world by storm. It was an international phenomenon, um, and it was extremely popular. Maybe you played it yourself. Like, Chris Purdy, there's no way you didn't play Pokemon. Did you play Pokemon Go? You played Pokemon Go. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad. I was like, who can give me affirmation? Um, So, (laughs) um, I came across an article about Pokemon Go and the different responses that people had to to Pokemon Go. Believe it or not, not everyone loved the game. And here's what the the article said. The non-media response to Pokemon Go has been overwhelming. Scroll through your Facebook and Twitter feeds and you'll find three basic responses to Pokemon Go. Group one thinks that the game is amazing. That's Chris Purdy. And can't believe how much they've walked in the past week. Group two doesn't really know what's going on. And then there's group three. The naysayers. The contrarians. Not the folks with legitimate concerns about safety or with technical critiques of the game's mechanics. But the kind of people who discovered Santa wasn't real when they were five and they just had to tell everyone else in their kindergarten class. Some of them think that the game signals the end of meaningful face-to-face relationships. Some thinks that the game uh, is just dumb and they're upset that people are enjoying it. Others think that their own interests are so far superior that they just can't be bothered with Pokemon Go. The Pokey Pharisees, he calls them, the Pokey Pharisees, embody an insidious law. Whether it's from Christians who don't think we're spending enough time evangelizing or reading our Bibles or praying or from neighbors who think we aren't sophisticated enough in our tastes and hobbies, it hits us. It all adds up to one simple allegation. Thou art not using thy time as wisely as I am using mine. Thou art not using thy time as wisely as I am using mine. 
Now, there's no way we can know this for sure, but the Pharisee that we're about to read, at, read about in this parable would definitely have been a pokey Pharisee if he was living in 2016. No question about it. And so I want to ask the question, what does pride, self-righteousness do to our relationships? That's what we're going to ask. I'm going to read the passage, pray, and we're going to walk through it. This is God's word. He's not silent. He's spoken not to give us rules to follow and exam to ace. He's spoken to you, to me, because he loves us. He also told this parable, he meaning Jesus, to some who uh, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful your word is living and active, but our minds... Our restless, our hearts are busy, and we ask that by your Spirit you would slow us down, that we wouldn't just hear your word, that we would also do it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to manage our time this way. Uh, First, the tragedy of pride, and then the shock of humility. The tragedy of pride, and then the shock of humility. Let's do the first one. So, this parable, you got two people, you got two men, and it's a profound picture especially for the Pharisee, of how poisonous pride can truly be. The first thing that we see in this parable is that pride affects the the way that we see others. Pride affects the way that we see others. It distorts our vision. Look at verse 11 again. This is what he says. The Pharisee, looking at the tax collector, prays like this, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His, His eyes are rolling And he's pointing this guy out. And then he proceeds to list off his spiritual resume. Do you notice that? The pride in the Pharisee's heart results in him looking at others with judgment. Not just the the tax collector, but he's placed himself on this moral and spiritual and theological pedestal. And and so it affects his vision, right? He sees others differently. He sees them as scoundrels and not as those made in God's image who have inerrant dignity. He sees people who don't measure up to his standards. Now, it's important that we remember, though, um, Pharisees like kind of a bad rap in the Bible, and they, they kind of deserve it. But um, Pharisees, if you think about it, were, which, they were like the experts of the law. They were kind of like the seminary professors of the day. Uh, They were just the experts of God's law. But the problem with Pharisees and this Pharisee wasn't his delight in God's law. It's fine that he loves God's law, but he places his trust and his confidence in his own ability to keep the law. Does that make sense? It's where his trust is. It's fine that he likes the law. David loved the law. But his confidence is in his own ability to keep the law. That's the problem. And so that's why Jesus says he told this parable 
to those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. And so the Pharisee looked around the room and he concluded, I've got this covered. I fast twice a week. I never miss a day in my Bible reading plan. I never go to parties at the row. And so why can't everyone else get their act together? And I'm so glad I'm like, not like them, Lord. That's his prayer. If you're a Wofford student, probably. It's not surprising, though, that the Pharisee is standing by himself. Who would want to hang out with him? <laughs> right? Because self-righteous pride always makes you see others with self-contempt, and it always drives people away. Always. Now, while you and I might not uh, be Pharisees about Pokemon Go or even the law, there are all kinds of ways that we can be self-righteous in life. I'm going to name a couple of different kinds of Pharisees. Maybe you fit into one of these. Uh, You have the food Pharisees. The food Pharisee looks down on those who don't uh, measure up to the all-natural, organic, farm-to-table, free-range, grass-fed standards. And so they pray, Lord, the the food Pharisee prays, thank you that I'm not like those other people who eat so many cookout milkshakes and frozen dinners. That's their prayer. Then you've got the, the generational Pharisees, I'll just say. The generational Pharisees, here's, here's what they do. The generational Pharisees have no time for other generations, older or younger, who just like don't get social justice the way that they do. They're not, like other generations aren't woke enough. And so what they pray, Lord, thank you that I'm not like my baby boomer relatives, Right? I feel sorry for them. I'm so glad I'm not like them. You have the political Pharisees. We will know who those folks are uh, in the next few weeks or so. Uh, The political Pharisee can't imagine how someone on the opposite end of the political spectrum could be made in the image of God. They know that theologically, but like, how can they be a good person? And so they pray, Lord, thank you that I'm not like all those other woke people on the left. Thank you that I'm not like the conservative bigots on the right. The the political Pharisee loves the echo chamber, and they live for tribalism. You also have the the fitness Pharisees, the, the spiritual Pharisees, the missional Pharisees the legalistic Pharisees. My point is this, self-righteous pride is in all of us if we take the time to get honest with ourselves. And, and the reality is that pride always alienates others and causes division and distance. We feel so righteous about these issues. It's, it, it feels so just, but it actually does the opposite of what we want. It drives people away. So pride affects the way that we see others. It also affects the way that we see God. It affects the way that we see God. In verse 11, the Pharisee's praying, and the content of his prayer is telling. The content of his prayer. What does he pray? God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners. This is verse 11. Unjust. He makes the list of the people he doesn't like. And even this tax collector. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. Spiritual resume, it's right there in his prayer. Did you notice how many times he refers to himself? It's like annoying. I, I, I. Like, it's annoying to read. It should be. Because it's clear where he's placing his trust. Rather than giving God thanks for his goodness and mercy, the Pharisee makes himself and his righteousness the point and the content of his prayer. There's not much room for God in his prayer, to be honest. 
His prayer is thoroughly and utterly self-absorbed, and it affects the way that he relates to God. And so here's the lie that pride tells us about God. We don't need his help. We don't need his help. That's what pride says. The Pharisee is fully content with his spiritual resume, and he concludes he doesn't need anyone's help. He doesn't need God's or anyone else. Pride inflates our view of ourselves and thus makes us have no room or no need for God or others. Pride says we're good on our own. It also seduces us into thinking that we can earn God's favor. That's why the resume is there. That's how we can view God as well. Pride says you're good enough. You can earn it. What happens? I say this every now and then. New Year's resolutions around the corner. New Year's resolutions are great. It's always a great, like, it's always good to hit a reset button spiritually. Oftentimes when I hit the reset button, it's this, like, kind of seductive view of God. Like, if I just get it right in 2021, you'll, like, love me more. And I relate to God as the scorekeeper. That's what he's doing. The Pharisee sees God like he's a scorekeeper. If I can keep the rules, dot the I's, cross the T's, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date anyone who does, uh, he'll be okay. By God's mercy, though, um, it's always for the needy. It's the sick who need a physician, not the well. You've probably done this before. It's fairly common, which is hilarious that this is common. What do you do before you go to the dentist like you've never done before? Floss. Floss and brush your teeth. We had someone, we, you know, we have the uh, parents weekends. It didn't happen this year. So sad. But the parents weekend brunch, we have uh, the Saturday of parents weekend. We have it every year at our house. And it's so fun. Uh, hopefully we can do it in the fall. And usually we'll get some help. We'll hire some friends to come over and just like do a facelift on our yard. What do I do every year? I've done this every single year. I go out there and like knickknack around the yard to like make sure it's like clean before the bros come over that we're paying money to clean it. And I want to preserve this like cleanliness, illusion, stupid stuff. Like, why am I doing this? Why do we floss before the dentist? It's crazy. It's crazy. And we do this in the Christian life without noticing that we do this. We really do. Um, it affects the way that we see others. It also affects the way that we see God. Because we see him as a scorekeeper and we can earn his favor. One of the ways I see this, if I'm honest, is the culture of busyness at Wofford, which I very much, like I swim in those waters as well. Like I'm very much wired in that way. And if I'm honest with y'all, and around this time of year, I, like, my schedule is so full that I have no margin in my day for prayer and for scripture, for quiet, for solitude, for any sense of self-care at all. And I, here's the, here's, like, in that, look, product, being productive, y'all are, dri- y'all are so driven, and I love that about y'all. Here's, here's what's tricky about it. You're, you're subconsciously saying with your life, I don't need to pray and I don't need scripture and therefore I don't need God today. I'm saying in my life with that schedule so full that I can't breathe, I don't need daily bread today. I don't need daily bread. I've got daily bread. You hear what I'm saying? And it's very subtle and seductive. And that's, that's such the case in my own life. 
if I'm honest. Um, but the parable doesn't stop there. It, it goes to this, this tax collector. We're going to move to the second point now. It doesn't just give us a picture of self-righteous pride. We also see him a man is like completely and utterly undone by his own sin and looks to God out of the pain of his helplessness. In verse 13 and 14, look there, the tax collector standing far off. This is such a vivid um, storytelling mode of Jesus here. Can stand him, he's standing off in the distance. He's not looking up to heaven out of shame. and He's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. Then Jesus says, he was justified. And then he makes this comment on humility and pride. And he says, for everyone who exalts himself, that's proud, will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you see this man? He's far away and he's beating his chest. Have you ever seen that before? I think I've only seen it in like Tarzan movies or something, right? It's interesting that in studying this, I learned, I didn't know this before, um, and I've studied this passage before. In the first century, men only beat themselves like that on the chest in like really somber and like agonizing events like a funeral. When this man looks at his life, he sees a dead man and he's beating himself in utter desperation. He is at the end of his rope asking for mercy. And you know about tax collectors. They, were the, the, they knew how to cut corners. They were the scoundrels. They worked the system. And when you saw a tax collector on the street, you're looking over your shoulder, you're getting your pepper spray out. Like this is who they were. It really was. And so Jesus is saying, friends, like, do we get this? It's the thugs and the scoundrels who receive mercy, not the socially elite know-it-alls like this law-keeping Pharisee. And remember, the Pharisee is so utterly fixated on scorekeeping. Remember that. He's trying to earn it. This, this tax collector has thrown in the towel on scorekeeping from the very beginning. I want no part. I have no interest in scorekeeping because I know I could never do it. That's why I'm beating my chest. He knows that he has no shot. Jesus is saying and telling the story, unless you get honest about the depths of your own sin, you will never understand the depths of my mercy. That's what he's saying. If you don't get the depths of your sin, you will not get the depths of my mercy. That's what he's saying. Unless you stop this silly scorekeeping game with me, you will not get my grace. It was never about earning anything. Jesus is inviting us, you and me, to a life of dependence on him and others because the Christian life, the, I guess it's bad news for us driven uh, Wofford College uh, autonomous types, it's not a life of self-sufficiency. That is not the Christian life. You cannot do it solo. And when you embrace a posture of humility, it changes the way that you see God. It changes the way that you see others. You don't resist help anymore. You don't balk at it. You stop pretending. You ask for help. You're dying for it. You know you need it. This is the Apostle Paul, right? What did he call himself? One of his favorite nicknames for himself, the chief of sinners. Wrote more in the New Testament than any other writer. Chief of sinners. 
So y'all know that um, my wife Ivy is pregnant. We're expecting uh, to have a little girl in the coming weeks. And so I've been thinking about parenthood a lot, obviously. I've been talking to y'all about it. And I'm trying to emotionally prepare uh, and physically prepare for no sleep and all the diaper changes, et cetera, et cetera, and all the sin that's going to be exposed in my life and how controlling I am of my time and uh, how um, picky I can be. All these things are going to be coming up to the surface in a way that I've never experienced it. Here's what I'm most trying to gear up for. Lord willing, when Ivy and I take this little girl home from the hospital, she will be completely and utterly dependent upon us to live. Everything, getting dressed, eating, living, it's on us. It's on us. And I, I mean, you know, not the first dad to say this. It has made me think of Jesus's words when he said, if you want to roll with me, paraphrase, if you want to roll with me, <laughs> If you want to roll with me, you've got to become like a child. If you want to live in my kingdom, you've got to get smaller. That's the kingdom. If you're going to be proud, you'll get knocked on your behind. <laughs> if you embrace humility, you'll be exalted. The kingdom is upside down. The more needy you get, holiness and fruit of the Spirit just pops out of your life because you're dependent upon your father. Because the reality, when you're going to follow Jesus, you have to embrace the fact that you actually need him, not just for like this eternal ticket to heaven, because you prayed a prayer like at whatever camp, right? It's like the daily need stuff is daily bread, i.e. it's a lifestyle. Sorry, <laughs> it's hard. The good news is that he's actually a good father. What kind of father is annoyed when his children, his son, and his daughter asks for daily bread. No good father is annoyed. Certainly he isn't. You are not a burden to God. Did you know that? You are not a burden to God. He can handle your issues. He is not overwhelmed by you. He is not stingy with his mercy towards you. It's new every morning. But maybe you're here tonight and you're like, look, Matt, this sounds great. Become like a child with Jesus and others and ask for help. It sounds great. You don't understand. Every time I ask someone for help and every time I ask God for help, it never ends well. And I'm like, okay, I, I get that. Because many of you in this room have experienced abandonment. Many of you in this room have experienced pain and abuse from people who should have helped you from people who should have cared for you. Of course you don't want to ask for help. But my invitation for you tonight is actually just take the risk. It is a risk. I know it's a risk. Take the risk. Depend on your father. Ask him for help. Do the risky, like, leap of being vulnerable with a friend who you know is there for you and who's not leaving. They will double down in love when you're vulnerable. They're not running away. You don't have to hide behind your busy schedule and your resume and your spiritual to-do list. You can actually become like a child again. Would you do that? Doesn't it, I, like, I want that. The Christian life, again, it's, it's a life depending on God. It's also a life depending on others. I've, I've hinted at this. Uh, there's a rumor going around, I don't know if you've heard this, 
that there's this thing at Wofford College called perfectionism. Have you heard of this? Maybe you have. I don't know. Maybe people like that aren't that are like over there in Millican struggle with that, but they're not here, I guess. But um, <clears throat> if you've heard of it, perfectionism. There's this idea. Some of the features of perfectionism. Not for me, but like maybe for Caroline or something. But <laughs> um, people who have it all together, they just don't want to admit that they're lonely when they experience it. The features of perfectionism, like don't flinch, don't be weak. They don't ask for help um, from others and asking them to pray when you experience a season of depression. People who act like they have all together refuse to show vulnerability. And again, they have a really high bar and standard for other people. But for those who have experienced God's forgiveness, know uh, that God is willing and able to help. And actually, Christian community is safe. Actually, what you experience is like forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. People who know the depths of their sin have experienced God's grace, they're patient people. They're kind people. Because we extend grace to others because we know God has been merciful to us. We love our enemies because God has taken us from the status of enemy, enemy to friend. We refuse to get defensive and self-protective when we're challenged by a friend who loves us because we know that in the Christian community, we got to speak the truth in love. We just have to do this. So there's a lot of patience. We live by grace, not the law. And the party-pooping Pharisees always drive others away as they sit on their high horse. And so those who have a posture of humility are honest with themselves. And there's this biblical self-awareness that they're needy. And what you'll find I'm not going to promise you'll find friends fast or something, especially you first years who are trying to figure it out. Freshman year at Wofford during COVID conditions. I will just say um, that this Pharisee's attitude and posture toward God and others, and I say this as someone who struggles with this in my own way, in some of the lists, the, the, maybe it's food Pharisee or fitness Pharisee. I don't know. You can choose. It's repulsive. It's repulsive. He's alone for a reason. Um, And you've experienced this from other people. And maybe you've had people leave you because of your self-righteousness. Embrace humility. And I, again, I'm not going to promise this, but people would just like want to be around you. They just will because you'll be safe and kind and gracious. I want to end with this. Um, One of my friends who um, is a pastor and does premarital counseling a lot with couples. One of his uh, biggest thing, uh, points of advice for, and I've used this with premarital counseling myself, when they're recommending um, who you should marry or if you should get married or even in campus ministry when people are dating, is they ask in the sessions, they, he asks the couple, are y'all willing to be repentant? Are y'all willing to be repentant? Now, what he means by that is, are you willing to say I'm sorry very fast, very quickly? Is your gut reaction, or at least are you willing for your gut reaction to be apology? I think that's a great way um, to say, like, you're willing to admit weakness in marriage and in relationships. So I want to ask in a different way, like, are you willing to be the kind of friend who apologizes quickly? Are you willing to be the kind of child with Jesus that says, I need daily bread today?
I don't have it all together. There's this poet named David White, and he's a guy from Seattle, and he has this poem, and this is actually, it, a lot of this is printed in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to close by reading this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, not sure if David White's a Christian or not. This is profoundly helpful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end by reading some of this. It will be done. Here's what David White says. It's called help. Help is strangely something we want to do without, as if the very idea disturbs and blurs the boundaries of our individual endeavors, as if we cannot face how much we need help in order to go on. We are born with an absolute necessity for help, grow well only with a continuous succession of extended hands, as, as, and as adults depend upon others for our further successes and possibilities in life, even as competent individuals. Even the most solitary writer needs a reader, the most Machiavellian mobster, a trusted lieutenant. The most independent candidate needs a voter. Not only does the need for help never leave us alone, we must apprentice ourselves to its different necessary forms at each particular threshold of our lives. An impending birth certainly means we look for aid, a place for it to occur, midwives, a doctor, a husband, or a partner to be present, a nest in which to welcome the child, a job to support the new life. And the one who is, uh, who is born needs endless help, food from the breast, walking and carrying at night, changes, washes, clothes, and a great deal of cooing and clucking. The parents of those who, who need help, or the parents of those who need help need another kind of help themselves from their very own parents, parents of other children, playmates for the child, Sometimes copious amounts of red wine and never-ending amounts of sleep, they also need a new perspective, a new imagination for the next stage of their relationship because romance is temp temporarily on hold. Logistics loom over all, hands are full, but the relationship itself needs a helping hand. Last part here. This overwhelming need for help never really changes in human life from the first day we're brought from the womb calling lustily for that commodity. We need extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary physical help to get through our first years, continued help through our childhood, and extraordinary emotional help, and good luck to get through our adolescence. After that, the need for continual help becomes more subtle, hidden as it is by the illusion that we are suddenly free agents, able to survive on our own. The one corner of the universe able to supply its own answers. This phrase, I want to tell you this. Not only does the need for help never leave us alone, we must apprentice ourselves to its different necessary form at each particular threshold of our lives. I want you all to apprentice yourselves to the different forms of help that God, through his people, by his spirit, in his church, in the scriptures and in the sacraments is so willingly wanting to lavish his help on you. May we be a people who receive it. And actually, might that change the way that we relate to God and others? Let me pray for us. Lord, we are grateful.